Socks has tickets uh, yet, I guess. I don't those tickets yet. Yeah. Uh, but this might be a, a year I've actually uh, been a 10. Have you ever been? Uh, no. You know what? The one year that I did have uh, two seats or two tickets to go was 2006. Um, but I ended up getting uh, like a show out of town or had a family party where I was just like, I- I'd like to go. But uh, I-, I-, I don't know. I was just like, uh, it's uh, being around that many people that just want autographs and just want to be seen like around the dudes. Like, um, I don't know. Like I, we did uh, a fundraiser for White Sox charities a few years ago. Nice. Like everybody's, uh, you know, huddling around, you know, at that time it was like Jake PV and Chris Sale and Canerco. And that was kind of the crew that was there. And I was searching the room to see where Harold Baines was because, Mm. I had brought the rookie card I was given for um, for a Christmas present, you know, 10 years prior. And I was like, I, this is the only time I'm be in the room with Harold Baines. I got to nice. and seek I, that. So. I think the, the best way to seek out uh, where Harold Baines is in the room is just listen for wherever nobody is talking and then head <laughs> in that direction. Yeah, he's certainly a quiet fella. Um, yeah. And you were at uh, the Harold Baines Day this year, weren't you, for when they honored the Hall of Fame induction? Yeah, it was uh, a must-attend event for me. He's always been my favorite uh, baseball player. Um, and, uh, yeah, I I was even in the camp that I was shocked by his induction into the Hall of Fame. You in the United States, yeah. <laughs> but I wasn't going uh, to shit on it, so I was like, hey, he made it in. Um, you know, I'd rather be the worst guy on the inside than the best guy on the outside. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I really thought it was a cool thing, and I went, and, uh, you know, it was a good turnout. They they did it against uh, Oakland, which I thought, you know, was it was either going to be Oakland or Baltimore. Appropriate, uh, either way. I didn't do it. That, that was, that's where he spent, you know, any of the years that he wasn't with the Sox, he spent more years with Oakland or more years with Baltimore. So, um, I mean, not more than the Sox, but that's right. where, he, you know, uh, other than a Sox uniform, he had uh, – a lot of days there. So it was, it was fun. How long was the speech? Uh, you know, his speech was two minutes long, three Perfect. at tops. Uh-huh. Uh, the, they had, uh, you know, a few other people come up and speak. Uh, Ron Kittle came up and spoke mm. and, uh, just not a funny guy. <laughs> he had said the same joke. Player. He had said the same joke three different times. Cause it didn't go. <laughs> So uh-huh. I was like, maybe I'll try it again. You know, it was like, <laughs> all right, still nobody's laughing. So, you know, he was a, a fun ball player, but uh, a comedian he is not. So. Yeah. Did he do finger guns at any point to kind of cue the crowd? That this no, is- <laughs> maybe that's what he needed because uh, it certainly wasn't uh, his style. But he made like this artwork um, for Harold, and he, the, he's like, oh, good luck getting out on the plane. And then uh, it didn't get a laugh. <laughs> So and later on during somebody else's speech, oh, they went to it too, and he's like, "Yeah, good luck getting that on the plane." I'm like, uh-huh. First time, right? <laughs> that, that I, I that's like one repetition short of like he ends Harold Dean's speech by like lifting up his shirt underneath. He's got an undershirt reading, "Good luck getting that on the plane." <laughs> right, absolutely. That, my catchphrase, everybody, come on now. That one I might have actually laughed at. I'm like, All right, prepare. <laughs> yeah. Repeat the unfunny enough times and it becomes funny. One of the classic rules of comedy. So, <laughs> right. 
I would have uh, respected, pers- you know, uh, persistence to a bit or committed to the bit, you know. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Eighty-three rookie of the year. Yeah. 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 Uh, so we are now four minutes into this damn thing, and I guess I should say what the name of the podcast is now. So, uh, hey, everybody, uh, thanks for joining in. This is the Three Strikes Year Out podcast, the baseball podcast, and the Outsport Network. My name is Ken Schultz. This is episode our Stan Musial episode. Uh, I'm a contributor, of course, to Outsports, Baseball Perspective, and Cub Den, as well as stand-up comedians, the show where all my funny friends come on and we talk about the sport we love the most. And uh, the other voice you have heard uh, over the past four minutes is one of my best damn friends in the comedy world. Uh, we have known each other um, since uh, September 2000, when I first started showing up at the Barrel of Laughs Open Mic in Oaklawn, Illinois. My friend Fritz Nothnagel. Uh, was also on the show and behind the bar that night, and we have been talking baseball ever since. Fritzy, thanks for joining me, man. Happy to have it. Happy to be on, Ken. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Happy and to I realized it was uh, already since 2000. So yeah, that's uh, certainly going back quite a few years now, man. That's awesome. Up on 20 years that we have each other, and uh, for the two points to make off of that, that uh, since we both started at the Barrel Laps in Oaklawn in the south suburbs of Illinois. Uh, we have both gained a comedic education like no other in terms of following every Polish joke ever written on stage. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yes. And, uh, and it, you know what was even funnier is going back uh, and filling in, and people were, like, pissed when you didn't do you know, <laughs> jokes in, in front. They're like, hey, this, you're, doing, you're doing, like, your own material? Forget that. <laughs> they train their audience as well on the south side, baby. Yep. <laughs> you've, you've, you've written things? That's that's not allowed. Yeah, we want a Pollock and a minefield joke. Is... <laughs> and uh, and the other thing to bring up in terms of it being uh, almost 20 years is that if you had told either of us uh, in that fall of 2000 that we'd be talking 20 years later and both of our teams would have won World Series as you are White Sox and I am Cubs, honestly, I'd have, I'd have said I would not bet on that. Yeah, you know what? I would have I would have gladly taken it and just said like, all right, great. Yeah. I, I can have one, and you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of fans were in that same boat. That like, if you could just give me one, you know, yeah. uh, I'd be happy. And then of course you get that one, and then you get greedy because then mm-hmm. 2006, I was like, no, no, I you've already set the bar. Now you got to go over it. But uh, I also I think one of the first text messages I got that next day. Um, after the Sox had won, uh, was from you and, uh, you know, just congrats. And, uh, I, I'm pretty sure that I returned the favor in, uh, yes. 2016 because, uh, as much as I, I, I am a jerk for not, uh, <laughs> wanting the Cubs to win, I uh, still, uh, given, uh, you know, congratulations to my friends that do love that, uh, that team. So, yeah, you were one of the, uh, many people who were causing my phone to explode, uh, on, <laughs> toward midnight on that Wednesday evening back in 2016. Uh, and I, I apologize for not responding to it sooner. I probably responded to it either at like three in the morning or the next day, but I was in the middle of sobbing my damn eyes out at the time I received it. So uh, I, I hope you understand. Yeah, no problem. I had actually, it had to have been the next day because I went to bed uh, that night at about 8 p.m. Central. <laughs> I saw none of it. Uh-huh. But when fireworks were starting to go off around the neighborhood, I'm like, ah, I think they won. Damn. Yeah, it. yeah, that's a pretty good indication usually. <laughs> either that or it, the either one or every Sox fan in the neighborhood was having the biggest night of their entire lives. 
Yeah, that is, that is always a possibility too, yeah. right? Like, like that horrific Southside bar that always gives out like discounted drinks every time a Cubs playoff opponent hits a home run would probably be even out free if the Indians won Game Seven that night. Now, like going into Game Seven, did you think that you were go- like, did you have any uh, thoughts of going to Cleveland or anything like that? Well, the thing about that is that uh, I was actually booked on the uh, the run that ended in Cedar Rapids on the weekend, opening for Jimmy Pardo, our, our friend. Okay. And uh, like the name drop that I threw in there, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, as you know, the Cedar Rapids on the weekend means the Wednesday was in Dubuque. So, what, whatever thoughts I might have had of going to Cleveland, uh, I emailed the booker asking if they were going to cancel the show the week before, and he, he just said, "Nope." Oh uh, uh, yeah, you know what I wanted to back out of this, didn't you? So, rather than burn that bridge, yeah, I, I decided to spend it by myself in a hotel in Dubuque, Iowa. And honestly, I'm kind of glad I did because I shouldn't have been around people that night. <laughs> I was in a mental state where, yeah, did just I I was just the side of mental collapse by about the sixth inning, let alone by the eighth. So, uh, I was say, yeah, that uh, game seven would had to have been like completely nerve wracking because. Even in, I sat with uh, game four at a bar that my cousin had owned. I sat with my dad uh, on my right, and I sat with Lenny Schmidt on my left. Mm. He had made the trip in from L.A. because he's like, I have to be in Chicago if this is in the World Series. So we were actually doing shows for uh, Burt Borth in Aurora, I want to say. And uh, we had shows the following night because I remember going on stage with like zero voice. Uh, but just like just even the nerves when it when it got to the end of that game and i was like they had a three-game lead but you were still like until it's done it's, it's like i had zero relief to me you know i was like i'd have yeah. it had to happen tonight please or they're gonna blow it <laughs> yeah i if because yeah you all and having no prior experience winning a world <laughs> championship of any kind you really always think of the worst possible scenario, uh, right. which happened. And, I mean, it, it, the White Sox ended up sweeping that 2005 series, but every single game was super close, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, I think Jeff Blum could still open a, a bar here in Chicago, and, yeah. and at least on the south side, and get, you know, regular patrons just to drop <laughs> in to uh, get an autograph. Uh, yeah, they were all extremely close. Um it, it was uh, great. I actually got to go to game one. Oh, nice. Yeah, I I went on uh, just, I, I was working like two different phones and uh, I was online. I got completely blocked out online, but uh, I got through on one of the phone calls and uh, I got, you know, I like search, they're like, oh, how many tickets do you want? So I searched for, they're like, no, nothing matches your criteria. So I was like, two, nothing. They're like, nothing matches. I was like, you know what? I'll try for one. They're like, please hold for your ticket. I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm going to the World Series. Jesus. What a thing to hear. Yeah. And I ended up um, in the second row uh, down the uh, the first base line. So, you know, I was right by uh, right by the right field corner there. It was, it was great. I was sitting next to another guy who, um, like, one of his customers, or he was a waiter that like uh, one of his customers had an extra ticket and gave him a ticket as his tip. I was wow. like, That's incredible. <laughs> you know, it was, it was great to, you know, it was uh, to just kind of chit chat with the stranger that you both had the same passion for the night and it was cool. 
Yeah, and to share and the eventual win too at the end of that just had to yeah. be like biggest release and the best feeling, man. It was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because uh, I remember thinking about that night. It was Contreras versus Clemens, and uh, they were saying like, "Oh, you know, Houston had to had to travel this and that." You know, I was like, I was "Like Contreras got here in a bathtub." You know, I'm like, <laughs> 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 "Rode here from Cuba." I'm like. I don't think he's going to care about your rough flight in first class. You know? <laughs> right. Although, to be fair, Houston probably was banging a bathtub in their dugout every time the Contreras threw a breaking ball. So, see what I did? Put <laughs> it in there. There we go. <laughs> yeah, they're like, there has to be a better way. After the sweep, they're like, <laughs> up, we're getting rid of Gardner. Next step, we're getting rid of the championship. Yep. And, uh, yeah, then 15 years later, it finally ended up paying off for him. That's the long game, I think. That's what, yeah. that's how everything works. Uh, yeah, so that's gonna be like the best game of your life, right? What's that? That's got to be the best game of your life going to game yeah, that world. Yeah, right? it was great. Um, I I was there, you know, an hour and a half early uh, to make sure that I didn't miss a, a single pitch. I had actually gone with two other guys that uh, had found tickets on the other side of the field, so we sat in our seats for the first six innings. And then I met him uh, out in the right field concourse for uh, innings seven, eight, and nine. And mm. it, was, it was so much fun to just to celebrate that. It's amazing. The energy there was absolutely incredible. It was, you know, um, I don't even remember what the weather was. It was just, you was like so locked into the game and uh, just having a blast. It was really great. Yeah. I mean, the first time in any series game had happened in Chicago since 1959. So, yeah, then that, that was. Decades and decades of stored up energy at that point. Yeah, right. I didn't even think of that. And then, like before the Sox went on that 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 streak, like uh, the Sox hadn't even won a playoff series in forever. Like I saw them get you know swept by the Mariners in 2000. Like I you know um, I went to one of those games and it was just you can almost feel it with Jim Parquet as your starting pitcher. You're like, <laughs> All right, I want him to win, but you know. Like, this isn't going to end well for us. You know? Anytime your game one pitcher of any playoff series is best known for a pun based on butter. Yeah, that's generally not a good sign, I think. Uh, Jim Parquet reference. Nice done, my friend. Yeah. I, I, yeah, obviously did not get a chance to go to any of the Cubs World Series games, uh, which is a bit of a shame, although they only won one of the three that they played in Chicago in 2016. So there was a chance that I would have gone and been incredibly depressed at the end anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my, my favorite game that I've ever been to, just to share this quickly before we do the deep dive into the current events, is uh, I went to the first game of the 1989 NLCS, where the Cubs were playing the Giants, that Boys of Zimmer team that kind of came out of nowhere to win a division that year. Yeah. And that was a game that uh, they scored six runs in the first inning and then kind of posted their way through it. So it was just like a celebration from beginning to end. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I remember clear as day, like, Two things from that game of walking toward the park uh, as Wayne Messmer was singing the national anthem, kind of hearing it in the distance, like as if it were a siren song guiding me toward Wrigley Field. Right. And then getting to our seats in the upper deck uh, and sitting down at the exact moment where Mike Bilecki, Cubs pitcher from that year, picked off Brett Butler at first for the first out of the game. And the entire place just went completely up for grabs. And it was that way for the next three hours. And it was just such an amazing sensation to be there for a cup playoff win, let alone, you know, I, I can't imagine like anything meaning more like a world series like that. 
Well, that was like Maddox uh, Cy Young year, right? Didn't um, before that. I think that was Maddox's first like 19 or 20 win year. Maddox won the Cy Young for the first year in 92, right before he left and went to the Braves because the Cubs front office is amazing. Yeah. Is it just legend or wasn't it only like $250,000 difference or something crazy like that? It ended up being pretty close it, because I think the way it worked out was that they read to the parameters of a deal like the previous spring. And then at the last minute, Larry Himes, the new GM, decided uh, you're not my guy, so I'm pulling this. And that made uh, Maddox and his agent, who happened to be Scott Boris, say, okay, uh, you can help. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think the story goes that even after the Braves made their offer, uh, Maddox and Boris called the Cubs and said, hey, this is what the Braves are offering. Can you come close to this? We'll come back to you. And Larry Himes told him, nope, I've already spent that money on Jose Guzman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And history proved him right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so uh, speaking of off-season moves is the best way to segue into our next talk here. Uh, it looks like the White Sox are actually making them, and that's good. Yeah, I really do like it. I'm uh, The Grandal thing, I think, is uh, there. Can, there's no downside to it, I don't think. It's not like an eight- or ten-year deal. It's, it's four years for, I think he's 31. 31, yeah. I think that that's really a, even if the last year sucks on it, I'm still okay with that. You know, like he, the graphics that I've, I've heard at least about like his pitch framing and all that. And, and the fact that he has a real bat behind the plate, like that's not just regular in, in major league baseball, you know, like there's three or four catchers that are not, maybe it's not quite that bad, but, more than half the catchers are a detriment kind of at the plate and it's for your, uh, your, your defense. But when you can get both, it's really money well spent. Yeah. I, I think actually your first instinct is, was right on it. It is just about that. that only about three or four catchers really get a genuine offense at the plate. It, it's we're pretty close to like historically bad offensive performance from that position. And Grandal not only gives you power and on base, but as you say, the framing that he uh, can play, which is, to be uh, perfectly honest, my least favorite catcher skill ever because catcher framing is really umpire shit performance. But uh, that, that, was, that was actually last week's podcast rant. Uh, but, uh, but the fact that framing matters, uh, Yasmani Grandal combines that with his offense, and he is one of the top two or three Best best catchers overall in the entire game at this point, and I think 31 is still an age where you can count on that for at least another one or two years before you might have to worry about moving him down a position. But uh, but yeah, I think I as as far as a first big offseason sign goes, um, they really can't do much better. And uh, so my question for you is. What do you think uh, that means for White Sox pitching heading into next year? Because uh, they're already getting Kopech back to go along with Giolito. So you already got a pretty solid one, too, right? Right. And I would love to see them add one of the – I mean, if I'm going to be greedy and if I'm spending somebody else's money, I would love to see him get cold. Yes. Um, I, I don't know that that's going to happen, but I, I don't want him going into the season thinking, you know, we have, we have Giolito, we have, you know, we have Kopech. We have Cease. Uh, Rodon might come back, so I don't want to assign somebody too long. 
like keep Rodon in your back pocket as, you know, for one, one of the starters eventually gets hurt, then you could, Rodon can come back mm. and plug along in the rotation for a little while. Uh, I'm not ready to give up on Ronaldo Lopez, but I also don't think that he should, nobody should be keeping, you know, uh, not keeping his seat warm, but he shouldn't be guaranteed a spot in the rotation. Like he should have to earn it in spring training. Like I would love to see him uh, grab Wheeler. Um, Strasburg, I think is going to stay in, um, in Washington, but I'd, I'd also, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, Wheeler come to the South side too. Like, I think that that would be a great fit, especially if they're not going to spend the money on Cole. Yeah. Wheeler's a, a decent to take a pair on because uh, velocity wise, he still gets it up there in like 97 or 98 uh, matter of health is the biggest question holding him back. And it's been that way pretty much every year of his major league career. So that when you have guys who have passes like that, that's the one thing that really is kind of a caution in terms of signing guys like Zach Wheeler. Right. He has been healthy though. The last two years, like last year was his career high in innings mm. up with just under 200. He was at like 195 and uh, or 197 right in there. And then the previous year he was actually a, his previous career high and he was at like 180 or 160 mm. somewhere in there. I'm, I don't have the exact number, but um, the last couple of years, he's at least trended toward, um, you know, he had the Tommy John surgery uh, a few years ago, and now I think he's been on the mend and uh, has really showed at least some uh, sort of sustainability mm-hmm. because he's been healthy at least last year. And then, the you know, I guess, you know, every pitcher is going to end up with, uh, you know, the, the tired arm here or there. But um, if any, if last year's any indication, it, it, he should be at least, uh, you know, ready to go. I see. I, yeah, I stand corrected on that then. Yeah, I, I had assumed Mets pitcher and DL. but uh... <laughs> No, no, you're absolutely right. Because uh, it, it, up until the last two years, he had been, uh, that was the, absolutely the knock on him. But the yeah. last two years, he's upped his innings count. And uh, I'd hate to see like, well, you should have saw it coming because he pitched more than he ever had last year. And now right. he's, he blew out his shoulder. So, uh, but yeah, the... the from what he's shown so far, I think that he, especially if you're just counting on, he's, I think, got the stuff of at least a two, you know, but let's say like a really good number two. Yeah, he's got definitely. At least stuff, and if you're going to slot him in at two or three, you, you really can't go wrong. I mean, when you've already got Ace covered with the way Giolito pitched last year, that sets things up so much easier for the rest of your rotation where you can t- take a flyer on a guy who's got that level of stuff. And even if he doesn't get up to, you know, that number one ace level, you've still got a solid amount of depth uh, behind him. Uh, and really pitching depth is the biggest thing that held the White Sox back uh, last year. I, if I remember right. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I really love uh, when Lopez pitches well, it's, it's like, all right, oh, this is what we traded for. Like, this was why we wanted him in that deal. And then you see him, you know, just uh, throw him to the, to the heart of the plate sometimes. And you're like, oh, what happened to the guy who was out last time, you know? And it's not even, um, I mean, maybe I'm just remembering it the way I want to. But I, I remember seeing him against, you know, like some top teams, you know, like see him pitch against Houston and he'd have a great game. And then you'd see him pitch against KC and just, you know, give up long balls. You're like, what happened? You know, 
So I, I definitely like him, but I just don't know that. Uh, I hope that they're not thinking that he's already got a spot in the rotation, that they should be looking to fill out, you know, spots, you know, four and five, not just not just five. Because yeah. I think they are considering Cease to be in the rotation, Diolito and uh, and Kopech. But, uh, well, yeah, when you're going up against a Kansas City lineup that's got Hunter Dozier as its centerpiece, you can't help <laughs> let the fear take over you. And, uh, yeah, I completely understand why Ronaldo Lopez would fold under that kind of pressure. Uh, honestly, I don't, I don't think that you make a signing like Yasmani Grandal and bring in a catcher with that skill set without assuming that you're making a big pitching signing to go along with it as well. So, yeah, I have to imagine that they're going to sign another big arm to fill that third or fourth spot and then just worry about the number five coming into camp. Uh, and honestly, you know, I mean, Strasburg, it makes sense for him to go back to D.C., but also he did for us. So he's going wherever throws the most money in his direction. And if Reinsdorf wants to do that, I think they could get him. Absolutely. And I don't blame anybody for going where the most money is. You know, like they, you know. Not at all. Not like these guys just lucked into, uh, you know, being the the players that they are. You know what I mean? They spent hours. They gave away their childhood to, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree. Get whatever money you can. Yeah. Yes. It's a, a good comp for literally every Major League Baseball player is Macaulay Culkin at this point. So. <laughs> right. He's, you know, Macaulay's listening right now and just happy to know that he's got something in common. Yeah. <laughs> Macaulay listening right now, uh, dude, you're kind of a smoke show. So just want to throw that out there. This is still the Outsports Podcast. Uh, so at this point, we have uh, spent 20 minutes of really pleasant Cubs-White Sox talk, which uh, at certain points in our lives, have to think that's also kind of a pretty rare phenomenon, wouldn't you say, Fritz? That, uh, Absolutely. That, yeah. If you want to launch into ebony and ivory at any point, by all means, I'm willing to see you wonder part on that. Yeah, only if we could do the version like uh, Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. That would... <laughs> oh, God. Yes, yes. Which one of us is Piscopo? Wow. That, probably both, honestly, to avoid like getting anybody mad at us on Twitter. Yeah, Let's just say that. Right. Piscopo. Uh, so I want to ask you, um, like, you grew up, uh, obviously, pro-White Sox uh, and by the time that we met, uh, you were pretty strongly anti-Cubs. Right. Uh, I was, you know, in kind of the opposite boat, the other, the, the other way, pro-Cubs, anti-Sox. Uh, so I, I guess I want to start this section by asking, how did you kind of arrive at that? Was that something that was kind of taught to you as a kid? Or did you kind of have bad experiences with Cub fans that kind of led you into that direction? I think it was, uh, like, early on, it was definitely... Uh, like just kind of how everybody around me was like, Oh, we, you know, we hate the Cubs. There's the, uh, you know, the stupid Southside Irish song that's uh go, go white Sox and whoever plays the Cubs. Um, but I, I think it's like Beverly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The Prince of Beverly. Right. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't know, like as, as I got older, it was, uh, I think the more popular a team is, the more I, I dislike them. Like I, I, I hate Notre Dame uh, a lot, but people are like, oh, it's because you're a Michigan fan. But I don't know that it's the same. Like, I, I hate the Cubs now on, on just on their own merits. Like, <laughs> to do with the Sox. Like, uh-huh. just they're so popular. Like, I literally, I went uh, to, to Europe uh, 
last summer in three, three different countries I went to, uh, two different uh, people I saw with Cubs hats. All right, like in Germany, I saw like Cubs fans, and yeah. in, uh, Paris, I saw Cubs fans. I'm like, I can't get away anywhere. Like, they're, <laughs> they're, I mean, maybe other than the Yankees, they're the most popular team on the on the planet, is what I would think. Uh, Cubs, Yankees, and Red. <laughs> Yankees are number one, obviously, but yeah, I would say those three, and maybe the Dodgers might worm their way into a little bit, but yeah, those are the national teams, and yeah. maybe the international, you say. Like, I, I would agree with you that I would think it would go Yankees is the most popular on, on the planet, and then I would I would slot the Cubs in at number two, mm. and then Red Sox, uh, Dodgers. Yeah. it's I forget who, what website did, like, the, um, you know, the uh, map of the United States, and it showed like w- who had which fan bases covered which areas. Mm-hmm. And, like you needed the biggest zoom to see like any socks. <laughs> you know, like, hey man, you got the covered, what more do you need? It was just like one county, you know, <laughs> like four blocks. And then like I'm, uh, I also love the Mets, and that had no coverage either. It was like. Yeah. Yeah. I might as well have picked the you know the White Sox of New York because that's exactly what they're like. And, and living in New York for eight and a half years, I mean, Mets fans do have that chip in the shoulder that the way White Sox fans do too. So yeah, it is not a bad comp, honestly. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's interesting to say that that uh, I mean, talking about pushing back against something that just has that overwhelming popularity, and kind of what that strikes me as is you're kind of you've got the comedy mentality and applying it to your baseball fandom because that's kind of, I mean, that's what we do is that yeah, if, like right. number of people they are into something, we push back and make fun of it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm a poser, Fritz, man, <laughs> I've been found out. Son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. You know, the only thing that I'd say that uh, since like, uh, probably my early twenties, like having friends like you, having friends like Denise, uh, having people that I do, uh, like admire and care about, um, like the, you know, like the Cubs, um, like I can't, I used to be able to just root against them openly, no matter who was around me. Now mm-hmm. I like, I keep it to myself. I'm like, all right, well, I don't want them to win, but I'm still going to have a nice conversation. Cause I'm a, you know, like I'm going to actually be an adult, you know, so, uh, As nearly 20 years. I appreciate your discretion. My friend, that's great. <laughs> but I had to grow up eventually, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're in comedy, so only grow up so much, I think, again. Right. Yeah, and, I, and it's kind of the same with you, that, uh, you know, getting to know you, obviously, much better over the years, and our friend Jimmy Pardo, again, uh, it's two name drops in one episode, you're welcome, Jimmy, uh, getting up for his audience into the Never Not Funny world. Um, but, I mean, and, and Jimmy's the best example of, like, the most mature Chicago baseball fan I've ever seen, where he's a Sox fan, but... I can't think of many people who are more excited like the day after the Cubs won the World Series for me. And and, uh, and I I want to repay that level of just kind of thoughtfulness to, to guys like you, too. And, and so I'm trying to get better as well. And uh, it, what, what you said earlier about uh, seeing Cubs hats when you're traveling the world, and that kind of reminded me of kind of when I f- fell into the idea of we got to hate the other baseball team in town back in like – late junior high, early high school, which was when that White Sox early 90s renaissance took place with Frank Thomas and Robin Ventura and Jack McDowell and those guys. And uh, I was of the age where you are your most insecure ever as a person. So that I think that played into it a little bit. 
And mm -hmm. all kids in school knew that uh, if you made fun of the Cubs, Ken would cry. So I think that uh, that there's a little bit of trauma that that's going to always be there that I'm trying to work through a bit. But I distinctly remember uh, when the Sox got good in the early 90s. It was also when they switched uniforms to that silver and black look. Yes. And that's the most popular White Sox hats have ever been because Dr. Dre and Snoop were wearing them. So all the cool kids wanted to be part of that, too. And that was the only time I remember like going to Wrigley Field and just seeing White Sox hats not everywhere, but certainly seeing enough of them where it was like, oh, my God, are, are the Cubs just not going to exist anymore after a couple of years? Uh, it, it, it felt it to my stupid 12-year-old self like, oh, shit, they're taking over. Uh, yeah. And uh, so I think uh, that security kind of led to led me to be kind of more of a dick than I should have been uh, to, to certain fan friends. And as I say, trying to get over it myself. So, um, And it's interesting that... Uh, I was kind of thinking about this as I was putting together the, the outline for the podcast today, um, that uh, Cubs, White Sox hate, uh, especially in like the early 2000s when uh, it seemed like it boiled down to like the battle of city homophobia versus city racism, where yeah. uh, if you went to Sox Park, uh, they would be selling the t-shirts outside that read Wrigley Field, world's largest gay bar, which... Right. Uh, to that I say, if that's the case, why haven't I never gone home with Nico Horner? Uh, <laughs> I, sky point. But, uh, and then you went to Wrigley Field, and the idiot t-shirt makers were selling uh, Ozzy Ian mows my lawn, was, was how they responded. So it was like both worst instances of either side of the city fighting each other for supremacy. Yeah, I don't know whether it's just, uh, I'll just be it, uh, for myself, like, I don't know whether the city's grown up since then, or... Uh, or I just, I have, like, I remember thinking that all that was hilarious. Uh, you, know, <laughs> I was, uh, you know, like, you get a little older, you're like, all right, it's condescending to uh, a giant group of people. Like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we could be better than that. Yeah, you know? I think we're just kind of finally understanding that, yeah, you're actually hurting large groups of people. And, and I think you, there is something to that. The city is growing and maturing because at, at, we started the podcast by saying both teams have now won the damn thing. So, you really don't have this idiotic city bragging rights, insecurity bullshit anymore to, to fall back on. And you just have to remember that your team won a World Series, and that, that's enough. Uh, so moving on from that to something that unites us again, uh, you have, for the past couple of years, had the distinct privilege of an actual play-by-play -play broadcaster calling the games on TV for the first time in decades. Jason Benetti is one of the damn best broadcasters in baseball i completely agree it's been so nice to have him in the booth um to have somebody that uh will interact with steve stone like steve stone is a brilliant broadcaster like yes as much as i i i, I hate the cubs like i used to watch him when he was with harry and he would still deliver like a really good broadcast you know so i've always been a fan of stone and when he came over i was like oh this is incredible like this is a, you know, a guy that we have. And then, um, side note, like I'm always jealous when I listen to the Cub game on the radio and I hear Pat Hughes instead of having to listen to Ed Farmer. It's the, mm -hmm. um, you mean your broadcaster should have emotion? Is that, yeah. is that a requirement for the job? Back to Bonetti, like he really delivers the game well. Like he, you know, he, I mean, he doesn't overdo it though either. You know, he can have a, a, genuine conversation with with stone 
there's there's no forced jokes. It's uh, you know, it's not like he wrote the script beforehand. He lets the moment be the moment, and him and Steve, really, you know, like he listens too. Like when Steve is talking, he'll actually listen to it and not just go off on a tangent of how you know every umpire is against the White Sox. And, <laughs> you know, you got to have more TWTW. You know, like, it's just it's really a nice nice switch. Yeah. It's it's really isn't it great to finally be able to listen to what it sounds like when two broadcasters genuinely like each other and like focus on each other's chemistry as opposed to as you say trying to overpower with whatever corn pone personality you've adapted for TV purposes. Absolutely, because even uh, when it was when it was Hawk and Pachoric, like they didn't you know they didn't get along either. It was just I, I don't know. I mean, I still when I'm watching a White Sox game. We'll use all my hawkisms, you know, like I'll still, you know, high five my friends. You can put it on the board, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I still scream. He gone when the guy strikes strike out, you know, uh, the guy hits it hard. I scream mercy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I still, I still do all that stuff, but I just, I couldn't take, uh, I mean, he was just, he was getting to be a, a crabby old man that I it just, uh, Anything that was new, he it, it was automatically. Oh, I hate that. Mm-hmm. You know, oh yeah. You know, right. Well, and, it, uh, conversely, and whenever I watch the Cubs, I always pay tribute to Ron Santo by just about every game finding an excuse to yell, "Oh no!" <laughs> and what is going on? <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot of people like I know a lot of Cub fans that loved Ron Santo. I was not a fan. Like I, yeah. I love Pat Hughes. Like he really is a genuinely like fantastic broadcaster and i know that he's up for the of the hall of fame this year is right. that yeah award. as as it talk oddly enough well, well deserved pat pat hughes certainly deserved it he's yeah. really good because even yeah. for a guy that's rooting against the team that he's calling um <laughs> i i still listen to the game like he just um like what's necessary for a radio broadcaster he paints the picture and really does um you know just let the game breathe too. So it's, he's really a, you know, you're lucky to have that guy. Yeah. The, the best tribute to Pat Hughes actually, I think is that he is about the broadcaster. I can think who could make the Ron Santo as color experience work necessarily. Uh, Because I mean, Santo, he was employed as a color commentator, but we know that analyst was not part of his job. Never actually tried analyzing anything in his life. His job was to react viscerally to whatever he saw happen in front of him on the field. And then to, when the game got slow, to kind of verbally meander off to some random direction and make it, like, oddly entertaining in some way. And, and it was Pat Hughes' skill to both have those weird, strange conversations with Santo and still figure out ways to, like, sneak in actual play-by-play in the pauses. And nobody noticed that he did that. And that was like his biggest skill, and, yeah, and it was it had to be like a top of the line broadcaster to make it work. And that's honestly like the first line that should be the first line on the Hall of Fame certificate that he should get this year is yeah. that he, he made Ron Santo listenable. And and I loved Ronnie, but yeah, I mean Ronnie was just there to to scream and cheer. Uh, and yeah, God, uh, Hawk. I mean, I and again in preparing for the episode, I was trying to just, like come up with Hawk memories, and it ended up like. Just being like a list of like articles of impeachment uh, right. between like 
TWTW and telling Ron to keep his nose out of politics and typical Asian motion discussion involved. And, yeah. Harold Bain. So that, that's, you know, mm. that was, yeah. uh, I think he was, the, he was the GM that traded. Uh, oh, really? To, uh, to Texas. I'm Texas. Texas. So he's, I'd heard, heard Benia, but I didn't know. God. Yeah. <laughs> Did anybody think caucus GM was a good idea? Like, you yeah. listen to 20 like, seconds broadcast. Lansdorf loved him. He had to, because that's the only reason why he was around for so long. Like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but just a, the, I know I strayed away from the Benetti thing too long. Like, okay. he really is good, though. Like, yes. uh, oh. when he was doing those games with, with Jimmy Pardo, uh, I threw one in for you, too. Like, when he did the with Bill Walton, you know, uh, like, he still can carry the booth all by himself. Yeah. He's also able to bring uh, you know other people in and 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 just be a good dance partner and you know not step on the other person's toes. He really, whoever comes in, he can make it work. Like yeah. listen to him do basketball games. He does the same thing. Like he does not step on the other person's toes. He, you know, he just really is. It's a good dance with Benetti where he he does you know he works with that other person. He's not stepping on their toes. He really lets the moment, you know. Yeah you know, breathe and not, you know, he doesn't have to be overly excited over every, everything, you know, but when, when the time calls for a little more volume, then he does it, you know, it, it seems like a genuine broadcast, you know, so I've always loved Benetti. That is to me, the most important part of being a broad baseball play by play guy is knowing that difference of when you need to step it up, like add a little excitement to your voice to, to match the moment. And then also know when just to be quiet and let, especially on TV, just let the pictures and the sound tell the story for you. And Benetti right. is great at that. Len Casper with the Cubs is great at that. And it makes such a difference, especially over 162 games, to have a broadcaster who knows not to overpower you every single day like that. And yeah. uh, Len Casper game too. I'm sorry? I, I said Len Casper does call a good game as well. And yeah. I, uh, you know, listen to do interviews and stuff like that on uh, on the score a bunch, and he's a genuinely smart baseball dude. Like he's, uh, if you had any questions about baseball, he's usually he's pretty smart. Like he's it's a always a good interview because you always come out. Uh, I think knowing you know at least a little something more than I knew going you know before the interview. He's a he's a smart dude. Yeah, he's. You can definitely tell that Len is genuinely fascinated about the aspect of baseball, from analytics to strategy to history. He always wants to learn more, and it always comes across when he talks about it. And that that's what makes him such a good guest on the radio, too, as you say. Uh, so I guess the last point about Hawk, before moving on to our final topic, is that uh, there was, of course, one point where you could expect Hawk would let the game breathe, and that would be literally any time the White Sox were losing. In that, in that case, the game could breathe for five solid innings at a time. Right. Where he just would not speak for innings at a time. And, you know, it, it, you can almost feel the tension between by between him and Jackson at the end, him and Darren Jackson. Yeah. I don't think Darren Jackson's a bad broadcaster. He's, I think I've, I've seen him paired up with, with other people, and he, he seems to do a pretty fine job. You know, but for whatever reason, when when Hawk would just go silent for for time, and he he'd even try to you know like throw it to him once in a while and still get nothing. You know, it was like it just became a really weird broadcast. So, um, 
you know, I I was happy he did his his farewell tour, and uh, mostly because there was a farewell. You know, it was like it was time to go. Um, I don't know if you listen to any White Sox broadcast on the radio, but I got uh, really excited. Like I I don't like um, I don't like Ed Fountain. All right, I don't I don't like, care for his call of the game. But Andy Mazur was in there doing a fill in. You know, like whatever he had to go to the bathroom or whatever. Like he's <laughs> And I was like, oh, my God, they they have a new voice. I'm like, this is great. And then uh, my brother-in-law was like, no, Andy Mason just covers for an inning. I'm like, oh, damn. I'm like, it was so good. Yeah, yeah. Mason used to do, like, the fifth inning for Cubs broadcast back in the day, too. And then I think he was on the Padres for a while before he took must have taken the WGN job with the Sox again. Uh, but, yeah, he's a solid professional guy, and that's, that's again – uh, sometimes that's that's more than like uh, Ed Farmer might give you. But my my idea of a typical Ed Farmer call is something along the lines of there's a fly ball to left field and it's going to be a grand slam. The Sox win, bases loaded, grand slam, and we'll be back with the post game after this. Like, yeah, right. There there's no break in the call. There there's no heightening of the voice. He's he's kind of goes anti-hawk a little bit. So, uh, like he almost feels like uh, it would be admitting a failure to show emotion when he's calling the game. We always, uh, I, I always joke that you could almost play like, uh, like a bingo card for uh, Ed Farmer that uh, how many, you know, like you, you cover one of the spaces when he mentions Notre Dame, you cover, <laughs> uh, one of the spaces when he mentions St. Rita high school, mm. uh, you know, you can cover uh, one of the spaces when he complains about a guy wearing his sunglasses on top of his hat, you know, like, <laughs> it was something that was going to, there was certain things that were going to uh, complaints that were going to come up in every broadcast. And he always had to work in, you know, a, a fighting Irish, uh, you know, thing. And, you know, I was like, you know, they, they don't play in Chicago. It's still an Indiana school. Sounds like he feels compelled to play to the South side crowd. That's, I'm, yeah. I'm surprised. Then I'm surprised he doesn't ring in every win by just the one bit of emotion going south side. <laughs> Raise a beggar's pizza to Ed Farmer. Nice. Yeah. Right. And uh, so yeah, I guess the last topic uh, that I want to hit with you uh, is probably uh, might be the fondest topic. I, I'm not sure. Uh, old Comiskey Park. Like uh, you've got genuine memories of that, don't you? I do. My first ever baseball game um, was at Old Comiskey. Uh, it was 1984 in July. I uh, remember opening my uh, my birthday present. There was a Sox jacket in there. Wow. That, uh, I got, and then uh, my dad's like, yeah, I'm going to take you to a game. So we went. He uh, shared a, like a season ticket package with like, um, six other guys or something like that, but we had seats right down first base line. Um, and it was, it was incredible. You just, you get to the, it really, that's what I'll always remember as feels like baseball. Like you walk in and, uh, you can still smell like, like the popcorn and like the, like the stale beer in the air, you know, like it was like an old ballpark, you know? And, uh, I don't remember, I don't remember who they played that day. I just remember really just enjoying uh, a game with my dad, and uh, I'm sure we probably didn't even stay to the end. But um, yeah, at 10 years old, it was really uh, it was just larger than life when I walked in there. It was the first professional game uh, 
I think I'd ever been to. Or no, it, I take that back. I was at a Hawks game before that, mm. but uh, this was just incredible, you know, because uh, you know you walk out and it was just gorgeous. It was really cool. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, it, you could almost call that baseball smell, honestly, at that point, because yeah, th- those two things you described, like anybody who's any kind of baseball fan hears that and goes, "Yep, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about." And yeah, Wrigley or NBA or old Tiger Stadium or any of those yards where that's just baked into the walls, decades, seemingly. Right, and it, it's like you, it's you know, you it, you go to any park now, and you're like, you get you get a little whiff of you're like all right yeah that that brings me back to that day you know yeah but I, I, I saw some fantastic games there uh, probably i harold baines was the best uh white Sox when i was growing up and uh what cemented him probably being my favorite uh, uh ever was we were at a game they were uh losing to oakland by three bottom of the ninth and uh just bases loaded, full count, you know, like the, the stuff of a movie script would be. And he just hit a no doubter. Mm. Like this, the second it left the bat, you're like, oh, we just won the game. Like, this is crazy. And uh, then it felt like that scoreboard went off for like five minutes. Like it, it, it felt like it just kept shooting fireworks. Mm. It was so incredible. And I remember, you know, at that game with my dad too, just celebrating and, uh, you know, being lunatics and really loving every minute of that. It was so cool. Yeah, if you got memories of that that just kind of soak in over the years, yeah, that that's why you're a baseball fan. Yeah, and I mean, I could I could still picture myself at, at, at whatever it was, 11 or 12 years old at that park and, uh, you know, just sitting in those gold gold box seats with the, you know, the bad painted yellow rails. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was so, so fantastic. I love that sense memory. Yeah, that because that's what you take with you from from experiences as a kid in, in ballparks. That means something to you like that is just yeah, there's little details that you never would see like on TV, but mean everything when you see a game in person like that. Absolutely. But, uh, I remember um, I would go to like one White Sox game a year because my mom's side of the family were Sox fans. We'd usually meet up with my grandpa at Old Comiskey back when I was you know six or seven years old, and I remember one of the first games that I went to there. Uh, one of the things that has always been a big part of who I am is I'm scared to death by loud, sudden noises like thunderstorms or balloons popping or anything like that. And I didn't know that they shot fireworks off after White Sox home runs. So <laughs> I remember going to a game, must have been about like 85 or 86. So I would have been about like six or seven years old and presumably like a Carlton Fisk or a Baines or a Von Calderon hit a home run. So I'm up there cheering with my grandpa and all of a sudden, boom, and I freaked the hell out. Right. I got to say that's got to be at least 60% of the reason why I'm a Cub fan at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's a hell of a thing to spring on a fella. Yeah, yeah. I was not prepared for that. Uh, and I also remember, like, after going to Sox games after that, and any time they hit a home run, I would put both fingers in my ears for the next 30 seconds, like, I'm, I'm cheering, but I also just kind of want to get through this because this is hell, kind of thing. Oh man, I was I, I went to uh, I think at least I well it was a, definitely at least one game uh, at, at Wrigley Field as a kid. My sister, my older sister, growing up liked the Cubs because her friends all liked the Cubs. Uh, now she denies it and says that she was only <laughs> a White Sox fan. Uh huh. I remember back in the day when she liked the Cubs. So my dad took us to a Cubs game and 
I don't know if this fact is, is, is just something I've remembered incorrectly or not, but Art Howe, was he a, an Astro? He, he managed the Astros. He might have played with them at the end of his career, too. He definitely okay. managed Because I think it was, like, his last game, or, like, maybe ever. Because I remember, like, being, you know, like, an extra round of applause for Art. I think it was Art Howe, but I could be oh. wrong. <laughs> but, you know, but that was, uh, you know, I, I remember seeing that part. And I, 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 here's what I'll say. I, like, I did, like, like looking out and seeing, like, their view from there. Uh, I was down the, the first baseline, so, like, looking out toward the lake and all that. Like, I thought that that was a really cool thing. Yeah. You know, like, and it was, you know, it was a cool part. Still is, yeah. I mean, what, the days when you get up to the upper deck at Wrigley Field, which is at this point far and away the best upper deck in baseball because it's closer than any other park in the game right now. And you get one of those sort of clear, crystal blue sky, beautiful clear days. The lake is that kind of color blue where you just look at it and go, that is like the perfect color for water. And it's like, this is... <laughs> I want in a setting for baseball. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Uh, and one more thing is, as a kid going to Kiski Park, too, uh, that also kind of made a huge difference for me um, in a good way is that when I was like six or seven years old, the White Sox were the one team in town that had Jumbotron scoreboard, and they would show cartoons whenever the Sox had a home run. And I thought, wow, that is really cool. Why can't the Cubs show cartoons wanting to turn, you know, Wrigley Field into like Saturday morning Scooby-Doo or something like that? Yeah, right. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, this has been delightful reminiscing with you for the past 50 minutes, Fritz, and uh, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, we can chat baseball anytime, brother. Absolutely, my friend. And uh, Fritz can be found on Twitter at FN Comedy. And is there anything else you want to plug? Uh, no, that'll do. Uh, just FN Comedy. Cause if you Excellent. Don't want, just FN Comedy. Great. And, uh, yeah, Fritzy, this has been a blast. Thanks, Ken. Talk to you later, brother. Talk to you soon.